NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. NFR Extra, episode 64. Now we're heading towards Texas for this 2020 NFR. We'll keep bringing on some folks that, well, that are part of the Western lifestyle and rodeo business. And one of the guys is pickup man or NFR pickup man, Josh Edwards, NFRC committee guy, uh, stunt man, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, what did you call him, Brian? A genuine jack of all trades. And then we bring on American singer-songwriter, Tracy Lawrence. He's kind of a jack of all trades, right? I mean, I... He absolutely is. And uh, his fun fact in this episode this might be my favorite. A lot of respect for him. I think that if anything I learned from hanging out with Tracy is that during this pandemic or if stuff gets a little crazier, I'm going to hang out with him because this guy can do a lot of things minus uh, relying on anybody else helping him out. Wow. Here we are. We know where we're going, Brylin. We're going to Arlington, right? Globefield, Texas, NFR 2020. How are you feeling about that now that you've had a good week to digest this? Man, I'm actually pretty excited to go to Texas. It won't be the Thomas and Mac, but it'll be a different learning experience for everyone, I think. And, you know, anytime we can go to a different place and see a few new things, you make the best of it. Yeah, I mean, hey, we were just coming off 35 years in Vegas, and because of, well, we'll just call it COVID times, right? Um, we've had to make that adjustment, and we're, and we're going to Texas. You know, the barrel racing side of things, you look at the Thomas and Mack Center, and you kind of got a blind first barrel, a crazy setup in the reality of our barrel racing world. I'm interested to see how we set up this new arena. It's different. It's really my go-to word for the club life field. I think it'll be fun to watch the different horsepower we're going to see. It might not be the tiny arena that we see normally. I'm more... Go back to when we had a couple of uh, steer wrestlers on and they talked about how quick they had to move coming to Thomas Maxner and how it changed the game. I'd be interested to see how people perform knowing that they're very, you know, they don't have to do that, right? They don't have to worry about the timing of things and what that means for, you know, that, that intimate environment that works at Thomas Max Center where now you got open. Will that change different champions and what we'll see there? And yeah, you're right, different, no doubt about it. I think we're going to learn a lot from this. And we're still looking forward to 2021 in Las Vegas. But in the meantime, we're focused on Arlington 2020 and afar. Tickets are on sale next uh, next Friday, September 25th. So don't forget, you can get them. And if you visit nfrexperience.com, there's more information there. And more info to come are in upcoming episodes with Cowboy Christmas and Juno Finals. Because we're going along with those too. Stay tuned. Enjoy this episode. But up next, Rylan Bentley's Rodeo News of the Week. This is Brylin's Bull, the Rodeo News of the Week. P. 
PRCA stat of the week, 388000 the total amount of money paid out to the pro rodeo competitors at the Ram National Circuit Finals Rodeo in Greeley, Colorado, September 10th through the 13th. The 2020 Ram National Finals Circuit Finals champions are Tristan Hansen, Bareback Riding, Olin Hannum, Steer Wrestling, Koi Rollum, Ryan Von On, Team Roping, Shorty Garrett, Saddle Bronc Riding, Jake Pratt, Tygon Roping, Nellie Miller, Barrel Racing, Jeff Askey, Bull Riding. Congratulations, guys. As we work our way to the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, our current Ram World Standings leaders as of September 14th are all-around Tough Cooper, Bareback Rider Tim O'Connell, Steer Wrestler Matt Reeves, Team Roping Header Luke Brown, Team Roping Healer Jade Corkill, Saddle Bronc Rider Wyatt Casper, Tied on Roper Shad Mayfield, Barrel Racer Brittany Posey-Tanazi, Bull Rider Kai Hamilton. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit nfrexperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Hi, I'm Fred Whitfield, eight-time world champion, and this is NFR Extra. I might fall from a tall building. I might roll a brand new car. Cause I'm the unknown stuntman that made record such a star. Josh Edwards is a true cowboy, and he has showcased it more ways than most, whether as a wrangler or as a stuntman in Hollywood. But he's much more than that. He is one of the very best pickup men in rodeo having worked some of the most prominent rodeos in the country, including the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Josh Edwards, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me, guys. You are a man of many talents and wear many different hats. Family man of two boys, working on the silver screen, Screen Actors Guild, uh, manage your automotive service business, pilot, past radiologist, and you rodeo. I, you've got a lot of spinning saucers going on. How do you, how do you do this? Well, it's, it's a lot to juggle. I won't lie, but, uh, I guess, uh, I kind of have career ADD. Maybe I never really, uh, decided what I wanted to do in life. I think, uh, you know, when you're little and you're, you know, people around you tell you, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. I kind of took that to heart. Uh, so I just tried to be everything I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, some days it works out better than others. Uh, it's hard to juggle a lot of it sometimes, but, you know, it, it keeps me, I think the, uh, the complexity of everything keeps me focused, keeps me, I always tell people I need about 25% stress level at all times to kind of keep uh, operating at a, at a high level. So that helps me. I'm, I'm not, a, I guess, a busy body, but I always like to be doing different things. And, you know, to me, focusing on one thing all the time would just get boring. So, uh, you know, I've kind of expanded out to things that really don't relate to each other at all, some of it. And, uh, you know, it keeps, it keeps every day interesting, I guess. When I wake up every day, I've got something totally opposite to do, and uh, that makes it fun for me, I guess. How did you get into the stunt, uh, stunt in the movie business? So that actually started long before any of the business stuff. Um, I'd want to be a stuntman since I was five years old. I mean, my favorite show was the fall guy watching Lee majors drive the big four wheel drive truck and jump off of stuff. And I mean, it was always, that was always in my head. Uh, 
and I still give my high school counselor a fit about it. I said, how come nobody ever brought a, a, a stuntman to career day? You know, all we got was bankers and CPAs and, you know, kind of things that were inside the box. And really rodeo is what led me to the stunt business. There is a ton of guys in, in the stunt movie business that actually started in the rodeo business. Um, and, and they, you know, eventually just like me, I'd always wanted to get in, but didn't know how finally met a person or, or met somebody that was connected with somebody else. And the guy that helped me was named Alan Jordan. And he's actually a pro rodeo official. And I was talking to him one day about, you know, this dream that I'd had. And he said, well, man, I know, you know, Alan works in the movie business as well as a wrangler and stuntman. And he said, man, I got some guys I could, you know, hook you up with and maybe try to help you get started. And, and that's really how it worked. Uh, I, 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 I was actually picking up at a rodeo in Fort Worth and a horse fell on me and had some video of it. And uh, I kind of sent it around and guys were like, okay, here's a, you know, here's a cowboy and, uh, you know, pretty tough, I guess, you know, considering. And, and uh, finally you just kind of, it, it's a long process to get into that business. You know, in order to work in the movie business, you have to be in the Screen Actors Guild. But in order to get in the Screen Actors Guild, you have to actually work on a show and be what they call Taft-Hartley. So it's a real catch 22. So you're really just waiting for your break that somebody will give you the opportunity to perform a stunt or, or, you know, if you're an actor to perform that, that side of it where you can kind of get into the business. So that's basically what happened. It took me about four years. Uh, but I finally was, I finally got a part, uh, on a show. Uh, and it actually wasn't even rodeo related. Uh, it was a hockey movie. And I spent eight weeks learning how to ice skate and play hockey. And uh, I went to, uh, we shot it in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was called the Genesis Code. And I was the stunt double for the lead actor. And uh, basically just got my butt kicked every day by getting checked in the boards and getting flipped in the air and slammed on the ice. And that's, that was the first uh, role. That was the role I was taft hartley on. I worked on a few other smaller films. Uh, before that as a wrangler, you know, helping with horses or had some uncredited parts, you know, some of them weren't SAG. So, you know, it, it didn't really count like Texas is the right to work state. So you don't actually have to be in the Screen Actors Guild uh, if it is a uh, a non-contract, uh, you know, uh, low budget film or something like that. So, so that's kind of how I got started. And then I, I got into doing some commercials, doing some stunt driving and uh, went out to LA for a little bit and went to Rick Seaman's stunt driving school and got to meet a bunch of, you know, working stunt guys out there and develop some friendships and started networking. And that's really how it grew. Uh, but it, but it really all came from my rodeo background and cowboy background that got me started. Uh, and then that's where most of it still, still lies. You know, we, there's a lot of guys that work in the, in the film industry, especially that live out in California that rope or hell there's pickup man or, you know, bull riders, you know, guys that are associated with the rodeo business that they need in, you know, in parts in these movies that this is what we do for a living anyway. So now we get to do it on screen and, and it kind of works out, you know, both for both industries. You talked a little bit about bar fights, explosions, drawn horse carriage crashes. Do you have a favorite or most dangerous stunt that sticks out to you over your career? Uh, you know, I don't know if I have a, a favorite one. I, I like them all. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie and I love the, the onset atmosphere and the vibe. And I really enjoyed working on the Genesis code because it was something out of my element. Um, you would think, 
like I said, because I rodeo professionally and that's, you know, I've been a cowboy my whole life, even though that's my strongest suit. When I got into the movie business, I actually wanted to do the least amount of that. I, I, I wanted to drive cars and jump off buildings and get caught on fire. And I never have got to do a fire burn. I've always wanted to, but was just never in the situation where I, you know, was able to do it. But uh, on, on that show zoo, uh, I got to drive a, a, you know, a one horse carriage kind of blind. I really enjoyed that. Um, I've crashed a few cars, uh, the hockey movie, the Genesis code really enjoyed that. Uh, just because it was something out of my element, I had to go and, and learn how to do something different. Like ice skate, of course I'm from Texas. We don't ice skate a lot. So learning how to ice skate, learning how to kind of play hockey, learning the game. That was just really interesting to me. So for me, it's about, you know, getting to be in an environment that I'm typically not going to be in and learning, you know, that skill or that, that skill set, you know, to perform that, that action. So that's always been the draw for me. I think, uh, I worked on, uh, a movie called the free state of Jones a couple of years ago with Matthew McConaughey. I really enjoyed that film just because of the camaraderie. There was a bunch of guys that, you know, we were the Confederate soldiers and we were getting blown up every day and doing horse falls and, and uh, fight scenes and getting shot. And, you know, that's just, that's the fun part of it for me is, is doing that. I never really wanted to be an actor where you would be on screen and say lines. I, I'm more of a behind the scenes kind of guy, you know, which really coincides with the picking up, you know, uh, in the rodeo, really the pickup man don't ever get noticed unless you do something wrong. You're just kind of in and out and you're doing your job and, and I enjoy it, but you're not the fanfare. You're not like the, the bullfighters or the barrel men that, you know, walk into their own music like uh, WWF wrestlers and, you know, their spotlights on them. The spotlight's not on us as a pickup man. Uh, matter of fact, like I said, if they call your name, it's probably because you did something wrong. And that's very similar with, with the stunt business. Uh, you're not there to be, you know, in the limelight. You're there to just kind of perform that duty. And so for me, it's a very internal gratification that, you know, nobody knows it's me. You know, you're not going to watch the movie and say, oh, I know that guy. You'll never know it's me. But, you know, to me, it's things that I, I get to hold on to and say, hey, you know, I can tell my kids, yeah, you see that? Well, I crashed that car. Or, That's me getting beat up by, you know, bad guy number one or, you know, or whatever. Uh, it's just something that, that I enjoy. So my favorites are there. It's kind of anytime I'm on set, it's my favorite because it's just getting to be in that environment that you're normally not, not getting to be in. But I love driving. I love doing car crashes. I love doing anything where there's a fall, like say horse falls. I love doing horse falls, love doing car crashes. And basically, like I said, anything that's outside of my normal everyday element where I had to put, you know, that much more thinking and develop a skill to be able to go do it. That is one unique skill, Josh, along with all the others you've shared here. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to go from Hollywood to rodeo and talk about being a pickup man and why it's the best seat in the house. Do you need a dose of social, a dash of insider info? Then the National Finals Rodeo Social Network is set up just for you. Get updates, insight, unique content, and much more on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. You can find us at Las Vegas NFR. And be sure to use hashtag WranglerNFR on your posts and tweets. There's something for all rodeo fans. This is the NFR. 
This is Vegas. Hi, I'm world champion bull rider Sage Kimsey, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are here with Wrangler NFR pickup man Josh Edwards. Jumping track a little bit. I'm going to jump into the rodeo world. You talk about sure. you like to learn the new things, getting involved. How did you get involved with rodeo? Where did that all start with you? Um, so I've been, I've rodeoed since I was a little kid. Uh, you know, if you, if you want the, the actual story, uh, I used to play soccer when I was a kid and we were farmers and I got burned. Uh, I was in an accident where I couldn't go outside in the sun for a year. And uh, I was 13 years old and depressed and couldn't play soccer, couldn't play sports. And my uncle's father said, well, you know, I rope. Maybe I could teach you how to rope. And I was like, okay, whatever. Because you can do it in a barn, you know. And so for the next year, I learned how to rope. And uh, when I got released to kind of go back to normal activities, that became a normal activity. And I followed it. I followed it ever since. Uh, I uh, started, you know, junior rodeos, high school rodeos, uh, college, went to college on a college rodeo scholarship. And then uh, as soon as I was able to, you know, got my PRCA card and, and competed in the team roping events and calf roping events. And then it just by luck, it shifted over to uh, the picking up side of it. Uh, I was actually a time event guy. My wife or girlfriend at the time was working for a rodeo company here in, in Texas. It was uh mesquite championship rodeo owned by Neil Gay. And I would go up there on the weekends, enter the rodeo. And, you know, just because I was there all the time, just kind of help them out and I'd help them sort calves or I'd always bring a colt and ride in the slack. And um, it just kind of evolved into that one day they had somebody that didn't show up or couldn't make it. And, uh, Jim Nielsen said, Hey, would you, would you be interested in picking up? And I was like, what in the world is that? I mean, I had no idea. And so they kind of showed me, put me in there. And I think what I realized at that point was the, the picking up side of rodeo encompassed everything that I enjoyed about cowboy life. You know, I was, I wasn't just roping calves and competing in a timed event. I was breaking colts, starting horses, you know, catching Bronx, still roping bulls and tracking out calves. It just kind of encompassed the whole aura of what I wanted to be as far as a cowboy. So I don't think I ever really quit being a contestant. I just kind of slowly faded away and it started replacing, instead of entering rodeos, I started getting more pickup jobs. And it, it over time, it just, uh, that's where I focused and that's what grew. And it grew eventually into probably one of the most desirable spots too for the NFR, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I, I was, you know, at first that was not my goal. At first my goal was just to, you know, do it and have fun. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm getting better at this where one day I might be able to, you know, work, at, work our circuit finals. And a few years later I ended up getting circuit finals and, and got it six, seven years and, you know, then somebody mentioned, you know, you ought to be at the NFR. And I thought, man, that was, I never even really saw that potential, you know. And then once, once it was kind of brought up and then you look back and realize, well, yeah, I was going to 150 performances a year and was rodeoing full time. That's how I was making a living. And, and, 
apparently enough people thought I had uh, developed my skills good enough that, you know, deserved that honor. So, um, uh, I've been alternate five times at the NFR, but I, I was, I actually picked up the NFR in 2014 and then went to the national final steer open in 2016. So yeah, it's been a, a very rewarding career for me. Uh, it's something that it's not really a, I don't look at it as a job. It's, it's really more of a lifestyle. And I think everybody that does this professionally understands that you don't just, you know, go out and play baseball or go out and, you know, throw a football around or, or, you know, do IT work or whatever it is that your profession is. This is something you, you basically live every day. And it takes that, you know, to be elite in, in this field. Josh, so you got, you know, what's cool about you, you are on the dirt and you see so much, um, very equivalent uh, more so than bullfighters, right? You know, they're only out there for, for bull riding, but you get to see every avenue of what's going on for the rodeo business and how the true action's playing out. And so you're a part of a lot of moments. Are there any moments that stick out in your head that you got to be a part of in any rodeo that you've seen where it was, you know, so, someone's important 90 some point ride or someone winning round eight of the NFR and that then, you know, they, they came on to be the world champion. Is there any moments that you've been a part of that stick out in your head or a couple or. Yes, sir. There's actually a few, you know, there, there's a couple. And, and as far as rodeo moments, I remember in Cheyenne, Wyoming in the short round, Billy Etbauer drew a horse of Harry Bold or Kirsten Bold called Painted Valley. And it was the anticipation of that was just unbelievable. The energy was so high and it was right at the end of Billy's career. And, and I'm probably going to quote the, the score wrong. He was, I believe he was 91, might've been 92 points, but being sitting in the arena and you're 50 feet away from this spectacular action, there's just no other feeling like it. I mean, even though you're not the, the contestant, you are as close to the action as you can be. And, and you're an integral part of it because as soon as the buzzer rings, you know, you do your job. So you're right there involved in the action. So that's one of my fondest memories of, of you know, a, a huge ride or something like that where you just remember exactly where you were when it happened. And I, there's pictures of it. Uh, there was a great picture taken uh, at, in that moment. And every time I see it, sometimes it's on a, a you know, boot commercials or, or a poster or whatever. I see the picture and I remember, you know, I was right there. I was 10 feet away from, you know, I'm right out of the frame. And that's a great moment. Um, another great moment for me is when I went to the NFR. There was there's so many ups and downs and trials and tribulations to get there and, uh, in 2013, a horse flipped over on me and I got hurt pretty bad. And I had just gotten the news that uh, I didn't make the NFR that year. I was alternate. And then I got hurt and I come home and, you know, pretty, pretty down about the whole situation. You know, you, you didn't make it again. I think I'd been alternate three or four years in a row at that time. And, and now I'm hurt. And uh, so to build back from that and then actually – recover, train, come back to being, uh, you know, as fit as I could be, 
going all year the next year and then actually getting that far in 2014, I remember walking into the arena and just that, that culmination of all the emotions that had taken 15 years to get there and all the sacrifice and, and all the driving and all the, you know, arguments at home with, you know, well, are, you know, are you going to be home this week? No, I got two more. And, you know, I, I looked and I knew where my wife was sitting and she was sitting in the stands and, you know, it was just an emotional time where we both kind of realized, you know, we, we had done all this together and, and this is, this is what it was for. It was a, a very powerful moment for me and I've never forgotten it either. That's awesome, man. And you know, kind of the crazy thing you talk about a guy that's always behind the scenes or just outside of that shot, um, just take into consideration like the time you're talking about at the NFR, just on the bareback and the saddle bronc riding. I mean, that's most guys look forward to that one ride each night or that one run each night. I mean, you're out there just between the bears and the Bronx for at least, you know, 30 rides every night. I mean, as far as somebody that, that probably gets more picture time, you know, as far as seeing somebody in the arena, the pickup man, I mean, that's a, that's a huge, huge part to play. Yes, sir. And, and it's, that's what I say. There's really no way to compare it to anything else. Like you're each one of those guys is in their moment, which is like what you're talking about. Like this is their, you know, Tom Brady on the two yard line with two seconds on the clock that each one of them is, it's their moment. It's their time to the next eight seconds is where they define, you know, who they are to themselves or where they are in this business or in this profession. And yet I'm in every one of those moments, you know, 30 times a night for 10 days. And uh, it's, I'll be honest with you. It can almost be emotionally draining at some point. Uh, you know, when we were finished with the NFR, you're tired because you're at such a high energy level and it sustains for, you know, two hours a night because every bareback rider, every bronc rider, I mean, you have so many uh, multiple facets going on in each event where guys are, you know, trying to beat other guys or it's a close race here or just everything that's going on. And you're a part of every one of them. So, you know, you're, you're, you're watching every bareback ride. And then as soon as that's over, there's another race in the, in the, the steer wrestling event. And then another close race in the team roping event. And you're, because we are basically the only, you know, contract personnel person that's in the arena for every one of those events, you feel like you're kind of embedded into all of it, you know? So you get to watch every run, every amount of the action. uh, and, And you know, in your head, you know, how important every run is to every guy. So it, it's a, it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. No better seat in the house. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Seriously. You got, that is by far the best seat you could possibly have at Thomas Mack center or any rodeo for that matter. Yes, sir. And you know, part of it, like you build such a camaraderie with even the contestants, you know, in the bareback riding and the saddle bronc riding, once the buzzer goes off and those guys are through riding, that's when you come in. And you know all those guys individually. I mean, some of them you're very close to, some of them you don't know as well, but there's still a, you know, a, a friendly camaraderie there. So, you know, if a guy just, you know, was 90 points on, 
you know, a horse and the bareback riding to win the round at the NFR. And now you're right there with him and he's getting his hand out and things that you wouldn't see, things that you wouldn't be able to see from the stands. But me and that guy are actually talking and communicating, you know, and I'll ride up, you know, say, Hey, you know, he'll say, I've almost got my hand out, you know, let's make it to this corner. And you're like, yeah, I'm right here, you know, great job or whatever. And they get off on you and you can feel that energy that they're still reeling from that high. Uh, and, and you're part of that. So, you know, when you, they jump off on you and you wheel out and sit them down, you continue on and, and go, you know, push the horse, trip the flank, get him out of the arena and all that. And you're still in the moment, you know, you know, that guy's behind you throwing his hat, throwing his hands up and there's 17,000 people screaming. And even though it wasn't you, you know, necessarily that made the ride, you're still in that moment uh, in the building. And I really can't explain it other than it's just the, it's almost an overwhelming feeling of it, of energy and excitement. And there's no other place like it than the NFR. I've picked up basically every major rodeo you can think of Houston, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Tucson, Cheyenne, Colorado Springs, Sykeston. I mean, uh, almost every tour rodeo there is. I never really go out west that much because just never been invited, but it's too far. But um, of all the places I've ever been, there is no other place that has an energy level like the National Finals Rodeo. You, you just can't recreate it. Oh, yeah. No, no disagreement here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, hey, I, man, Josh, this is uh, – God, this is great getting to know you, man. You are a you are a well-rounded individual when it comes to the Western lifestyle business. Uh, I I, don't know, I could probably go on, keep going, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Well, man, I really appreciate it. I I, I love uh, you know sharing experiences and talking about rodeo and and uh, you know it's been great you guys having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know if I can ever help again or you know my presence is is uh, needed or would help you guys at all, man, just reach out. I'm always, I can always be available. God bless, man. Hopefully, you, you know, everything goes well for you for 2020 and we, our NFR is a little crazier, but more unique and still an experience as ever. So. Yes, sir. We're going to try to make it that way. And like I said, thank you guys for having me and uh, Brian, you too. Hope y'all have a great day. The first National Finals Rodeo was held in 1959. Since that time, the greatest cowboys and cowgirls have graced rodeo's biggest stage in pursuit of a coveted gold buckle and the title of a world champion. We continue to honor the top 60 NFR contestants of all time. The son of a working cowboy and ranch foreman, Leo Camarillo, understood the importance of discipline and hard work. He used those characteristics when he embarked on his professional rodeo career. An intense competitor, Leo qualified for the National Finals Rodeo 20 times between 1968 and 88. During his career, he won four world team roping titles and one world all-around championship. The final title in 1983. Known as Leo the Lion, he revolutionized and perfected a team roping healing style still used today. Howdy, I'm Bob Tolman, and this is NFR Extra. Tracy Lawrence is an American country music singer, songwriter, and record producer. One of many rock-tinged honky-tonk singers who rose to fame in the early 90s, 
Tracy Lawrence gained a loyal audience for his mix of modern and traditional country sounds with plenty of number one hits throughout his career. Tracy Lawrence, welcome to NFR Extra. Thank you guys so much. How's everybody doing today? We, we are doing just, just about like we've been doing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's strange times that we live in. I, I do understand. Usually, uh, I've, I've already been in Vegas three or four times by the, this time of every year and looking forward to the NFR in and, and December and, and usually doing a couple of shows out there doing the finals and maybe making a night of the rodeo. And it's, uh, it's been a strange year, to say the least. Man, Tracy, we've had contestants on here. We've had you know country music artists like yourself. We've had stock contractors. We've had the whole realm of the Western lifestyle come on here, and we just ask these questions. And one that I'll ask you attest to those strange times. What have you been doing during these strange times? What what's been keeping you busy? You know, uh, I have uh, I've spent a lot of time on the tractor. I've bush hogged my meadows a couple of times. I have uh, planted my garden, and just a couple of days ago, I pulled up the last of the tomato and the squash plants. I think I got two tomato plants left. The only thing left are jalapenos and banana peppers. I have cleaned the garages out. I have uh, <laughs> worked on the driveway. I've written a few songs. Uh, I've done a handful of shows, uh, but mostly I've just worked here on the farm and, and got caught up on some things that been neglecting. We actually have contractors here working on. We had some water issues on the front of the house, so they're uh, they're trying to get finished up on that. So uh, I've just been staying busy and working, man. Oh, and, and we had a windstorm that came through. Uh, I lost a bunch of trees, and I think I had about 25 ricks of firewood that I've cut while we've been off. Got me a new uh, new steel chainsaw that I've worked pretty hard, and, and uh, so just normal stuff, man. Where am at that you keep busy at? Where are you at? I've got about 400 acres, about 30 minutes east of downtown Nashville. I live in a community called Mount Juliet, and I bought property out here a long time ago. We're running, I think we only got about 50 head of cattle right now. We sold a bunch of cows. You know, back in March, April, cattle prices were dropped out. We had a whole bunch of calves on the ground, but we've got the herd pretty thin down now. So it's just not a good time to be in the cattle business. Let's talk music a little bit. Altogether, you've created about 23 albums. Do you have a favorite album? You know, it's, uh, they all seem to be my favorite at the time that I cut them. Uh, getting a little distance from them, you know, you can look back with a little bit of a perspective. Sometimes they've been a little bit more personal. Uh, and, and I have favorites. I guess they're kind of like kids. You have favorites for different reasons. You know, that my very first album was something that was life-changing for me. So it will always hold a special place in my heart. I look back at it and I can tell what a kid I was, and you know, uh, as I progressed and 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 become a little bit more music intelligent and 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 pushed my boundaries a little bit harder, I can I can see the growth in myself as a vocalist and as a producer over the years about the intricacies of the tracks and things that I've done in the latter stages of my life. Uh, you know, one of my favorite albums has always been a record called "The Coast Is Clear." Uh, and looking back on it now, it's a little bit dark to me. I, it was a little, the, the whole feel of the record was a little bit darker than anything else that I've done. So I, I know that doesn't answer your question, but it's really hard to narrow it down and define one that I just really feel like is a personal favorite. Uh, I love the record that I've got out right now. Uh, I, I think I, I put more of me into this record than any of the other ones in the past because I wrote pretty much the bulk of the album and I've never really done that before. So this one feels a little bit more personal to me. So it's at the top of my list right now that's made in america correct it is yes 
you started your own record label. How does that coincide with these two? And, and, and what was it like in the, the beginning of all that? You know, uh, I started my own label back in 07 and it was really scary because I'd been on a major imprint my, virtually my entire career. I signed my record deal in 91. So I'd spent pretty much my entire career. I'd been spent years on Atlantic, spent a short time over at Warner Brothers and then was moved over to DreamWorks and then DreamWorks sold Universal and spent a short time on Universal, which was not a real good experience. Uh, but I left that whole situation realizing that, that, uh, the industry was was leaving a lot of the artists of my generation behind. Uh, the music was changing. The record labels were were not allowing a lot of creative freedom at the time. Uh, I had a couple of hostile encounters with a label head at Universal, which I will never forget. And I realized that I needed to make some changes. So breaking away from that, uh, the first song that we put out on my imprint all the way back in 07 was uh, Finding Who Your Friends Are. And being able to take that record to the top of the charts and, and win a CMA and an ACM award for the, for a vocal event and everything that, that transpired around that whole thing was very gratifying because it, it was very validating for me because I proved that we could take a record to the top of the charts and I didn't need a major to do it. The problem was what it did to everybody else in the industry. I watched the doors close behind that single because they realized where the loopholes were and they knew that I had exploited them and taken advantage of, of what they didn't think any artist knew and nobody's been able to do it since. So it was it was a very pivotal point in the music industry and nobody really wants to talk about it. But it was it was very gratifying to me because I've always considered myself a big student of the politics of this business. Very understanding and knowledgeable of the radio promotion side of it, the marketing side of it. Uh, a lot of things that went into it. And that, that to me is probably the most defining moment of my entire musical career. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. You know, after hearing you talk about just what you've been doing during the pandemic, you're a get after kind of guy and kind of navigate your, I mean, look, you got your own farm, right? You're very self-sufficient and same thing with the music side. I think that's something that, uh, as I've learned that that's very important that if you can navigate your own ship out on the seas, which they're always never, they're never smooth. They're more choppy than they are smooth. Uh, the better you can do that, the better you can, uh, well, I guess, uh, keep navigating through. The I think it's, I, I, th I think so. And I think it's really that, that wage in general in life, but the music business kind of plays by its own rules. Uh, uh, and, and I always considered working a record in the charts, uh, being, being in the major label system, it was kind of like running for office, but you never actually got to serve the seat that you were running for. You were just always politicking, going from one record to the next. So you never, you never, you never got to be a Senator or a Congressman. You just always kept running for office. And it was, it was a very exhausting path to be on after a period of time. Um, and I, I've watched a lot of my peers over the years as they've fallen out of the major level system. I think, I think a lot of us are settled into it now, but it's, it's a, tr it's a really hard transition going from being, uh, from playing that game to playing the social media game and, and not working records to mainstream radio and all the other things that come with it. But, I, but I'm enjoying being on this side of it because I feel like I have a better control of my life and what's going on around me. And I, and I, but I, I, I noticed how hard it is because I, I went through it all the way back in 07 and 08 making that transition. And I've seen a lot of my peers in the latter stages of, of their career just kind of struggle with the frustrations of getting off major labels and kind of trying to figure out how to assimilate back into a different stage of life. If that makes any sense, it's kind of hard to explain. No, it completely makes sense. I get it. Man. You mentioned Made in America, but what was the inspiration actually behind this album? You know, the, the album kind of changed as I went through the process. 
I've always had a system. Um, I've always been really hands-on with my musical selection. I've, I've written a lot through the process as I was preparing for an album. I've always gone out and looked at a lot of different published companies, done group meetings with, with publishing groups, uh, listened to lots and lots of outside songs. And, and as a songwriter, I always, I always felt like my stuff never was really good enough, and I always felt like I could find better songs to beat it. And I always wanted my records to be the very best that they could be, whether I wrote the songs or not. And I always prided myself on that. I found a lot of great outside songs like Time Watches On, Texas Tornado, and Paint Me a Birmingham, a lot of those things. It was really different this time when I started going through my normal routine of getting publishers up, getting songs sent in. I just... I didn't find a lot of stuff that I was really passionate about. It seemed like as I was looking for traditional country, most of the stuff that I'd found was either old stuff that had been laying around a while that I'd heard five, 10, even 15 years ago, or um, everything is, was kind of shifted to the bro country, the kind of pop country thing. And I just, I didn't find what I was looking for. And so I spent the majority of a year really just writing songs and as I went through the process, I, you know, I, I, I wrote a couple of shuffles. I kind of found some things that I needed there, some mid-tempos, had a couple of ballads. Uh, as we got, uh, initially, the title track of the album was going to be Chicken Wire, which is one of the more honky-tonk rocking things on the, on the latter part of the record. Uh, and I had, I had the whole concept for the album worked out. I had the, the record sequence worked out with how I was going to lay the songs out on the album. The last song that I wrote for this record was Made in America. And when we wrote that song, which was a very fast ride, I think we wrote that song in about two and a half hours, it completely changed the perspective of what this album was about and the way that I perceived what this record was. Changed my sequence, changed the title track to Made in America, and it really it brought the whole record to life. It, it made such a huge difference. It's amazing what one song can do to change the complexion of an album. I'd never really noticed that before. You know, it seems like for an artist that the more that you're the captain of your label definitely adds happiness in the music industry. All right, let's take a break right there. And after that break, Tracy's going to share his love for cooking and making music. They just show on up with a big old heart. You find out who your friends are. Want to relive the best NFR moments from the last 35 years? We've got you covered at NFRexperience.com. Check out the NFR History tab at the newly redesigned website for a walk, or should we say a gallop, down memory lane. You'll find images, recaps, and videos from the greatest moments from the last 35 years in Las Vegas. From Ty Murray to Trevor Brazil, Louis Field to Casey, Charmaine James to Mary Berger, Fred Whitfield to Joe Beaver, and everything in between, you'll find it here. There's something for all rodeo fans. Check it out at the newly redesigned NFRexperience.com. This is NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I am Benny Butler, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Tracy Lawrence is here on NFR Extra. Tracy released Find Out Who Your Friends Are in 2007. Radio stations across the country began playing that song, which featured some of his good friends Tim McGraw and Kenny Chesney. The song reached number one on the Billboard Country Music Chart in June of that year. Tracy, what what do you do? How do you go about writing music? I mean, like, just how do you approach this whole craft? What what goes into it for you? Obviously, you've been doing it quite a while now. What goes into this? 
you know, for me, it's really about structure. Uh, I've learned from some really great songwriters over the years. Uh, I, I'm not a guy that writes all the time. I don't wake up in the middle of the night and, and run sit in the living room for two hours, and I, I'm not that guy. I keep a lot of notes. Uh, I might write a piece of a verse down. If I snatch a hook line out of there or hear a conversation with something that intrigues me, I've got my little notepad on my iPhone, and all of that stuff goes in that notepad. Uh, I'm a schedule guy. I don't really write on the road well. Uh, but I've got my group of people, and, and when I'm when I'm home, I, I like things that are structured. So I'll go to my writing appointments, and and usually we'll sit down with, with a co-writer, too. They either come here to the house, or I go to a publishing company downtown, or just wherever we want to write on any given day. And we throw our ideas out to see who's got something that is appealing to everybody, maybe talk a little politics, what's going on in the world. And once we settle on an idea, the next thing we do is start trying to lay a groove down. Uh, typically when I write a song, I write the chorus first, uh, depending on what that, that song idea is going to dictate, whether it's going to be a, a four line chorus or a six line chorus, whatever the structure it's going to be. Once we get that chorus, then we write and we start painting the picture with the verses of how to, how to prop that chorus up and give it color and give it imagery. So that's pretty much been my structure for a long time. And I look at it, it's, it's once you understand the, the different structures, whether it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, first chorus, bridge, chorus out, what, whatever the structure of your song is going to be, it basically gets down to like writing a term paper. And once you understand the method of what it is you're trying to write, then your objective is to, to use words to paint that picture as visually and as vividly as you possibly can. Yeah, that's very methodical. I like that. Um, absolutely so with that being said uh, so the song when the cowboy's gone seems a whole lot of meaning mm-hmm. what, uh, what does that mean to you it you know we wrote this song before this pandemic before the race riots before all the political upheaval before the social injustice warriors and all this other stuff came out you know I and, and at the time, we all talked about what we felt was missing, you know. I think our society has had a, had a failure in their moral compass. I think we've had a breakdown from the inside out. And, you know, it talks about things in the Bible in the end times, how right will be wrong and wrong will be right and everything will be upside down. And I kind of feel like we've fallen into that. You know, the the cowboy is just a metaphor. He could be a banker in a business suit, or he could be a lawyer, which we know that that's really going to be hard for him to be. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a metaphor for, for the guy that has the integrity and the strength and the character to stand up against injustice and do the right thing, even when it's the hardest thing to do. The cowboy, the image that I have of that cowboy when I was young was, the guy riding on a white horse that always saved the day. And I, I, that was the image that we wanted to try to project, you know, because a cowboy he might, he might not say a whole lot, but you always know where he stands. That's deep. I like it. I love it. I'm going to kind of jump gears a little bit. What led you to make a Christmas album in general Are holiday albums, the artist choice, or do, does a record label drive you to do this? How does it come about to make a Christmas album? You know, it was it was really my choice, um, and I I've, I've always loved Christmas music. Uh, I don't I, I didn't want to do a Christmas record that was over the top theatrical. Uh, I didn't want to do a Christmas record that was show tuneish. 
you know, and, and even though a lot of these standards uh, have been tracked many different ways, I, I really love the jazz approach to Christmas songs because of the chord structure and the way they're all put together. So we really tried to make that approach on the entire record where it's just got a real jazzy feel to it where they're not, you're not overpowered by the instrumentation of the record. The structure is real important. And there's just such a classy way to present a lot of these old standards that I just really love, like, you know, uh, Winter Wonderland and, and all that stuff. Just it jazzes so well. It's just got such a great groove to it. I really love that Christmas record. It was, it was, it was a, a fun album to make. I will always treasure it. Oh, man. Talking about Christmas. I love it. Um, <laughs> Me too. Well, this next, this, uh, this next uh, piece that I got to ask you here is, is the opposite of Christmas. <laughs> uh, okay. In front of a crowd. I mean, have, has it ever gotten truly, because you play some good, good stomping stuff. Have you ever gotten the crowd where it gets too rowdy and out of control? Has that ever happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, there have been times. Uh, I've, I've had people rush the stage. Uh, you know, I... There have been times I probably haven't handled it as well as I should have. I've learned to just kind of step back away from it a little bit. But I have – it seems like, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, when people start getting out of line, you want to do like your daddy did and just get on their ass. And that's probably not the best thing to do as an artist when you're standing on the stage because it kind of ticks people off sometimes. But I've had people just be do stupid stuff, man. I mean, knock people off the stage, hurt one another. I mean, they, they can get out of control and just add alcohol and you'll see what I mean. Uh, but sometimes people, you know, uh, they just they just lose their sense of awareness about what's going on around them and they just can't help themselves. Yeah, I, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I, you know, look, I, I've been to many of my concerts and, you know, I go back to my, my early stages. I know that I was probably drinking and have a good time. But, and I think it's tough, right? You're playing good stuff you're getting everyone moving and unfortunately the alcohol gets a mixing i mean is it something that is it something that you know that you're going to get the crowd going that you're aware of and knowing that you got to be kind of uh kind of just i'm i'm telling you the truth it seems like the more times that i've had problems it's been problems with the way that security treats the crowd uh getting heavy-handed with them or not letting people get up and have a good time the security causes more problems most of the time than what they help What's a little known fact about you that people might be surprised to learn? I'm a great cook. I cook a lot. Um, I'm probably the primary cook here at the house and not just grilling stuff outside. Uh, I like Asian food. I cook Mexican food. I mean, I do a lot of Italian stuff. I make a great chicken Parmesan with a sauce from scratch. I like to cook. I cook a lot. I know where I'm going to dinner. You should see our Thanksgiving spread. We have an amazing, we usually have 25, 30 people at the house for Thanksgiving. My mom usually spends about a month with me uh, during the month of November into December, and we have a lot of family in, and we do a very traditional Thanksgiving spread. I mean, we like a, like a broccoli cheese casserole. I mean, mashed potatoes and cream-style corn and fresh rolls. I'll fry a couple of turkeys. We'll do a ham. My wife makes the most amazing cornbread dressing with these little Cornish game hens in it. It's just phenomenal. We, we have a spread, man. Oh, man, Tracy. Oh, you're talking about that. <laughs> I'm that's, that's the stuff, man. Eating and getting fat, man. That sounds awesome. So, oh man, getting stuffed and then having a bloody berry and sitting down and watching a football game, falling asleep in the recliner and getting up and doing it all over again. That's Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, let's you brought it up earlier, 
And, uh, you know, obviously we're doing some crazy stuff with this pandemic right now. What is it you enjoy most during uh, Vegas in December when we talk about the NFR experience? What are some things that you enjoy during that time? I love the energy of Vegas, you know, because all the cowboys in town, I mean, I mean, there's country music everywhere. That's probably my favorite time to be out there. And we usually play scattered throughout the year. I do a couple of corporate parties. You know, we play the Hard Rock, Sam's Town, just all, all the stuff around. Uh, but Vegas is uh, in, at NFR is by far my favorite time because I know so many people there. I've, I've had relationships in the Western apparel world for so long, and all those guys are out there, Justin and, you know, Stetson Resistall and Tony Lama and the Luke Casey people. I mean, I've, I've had relationships with Wrangler off and on through the years. So, you know, you run across people that you just don't see very much, and it's great to just hang out and catch up with everybody. I'm, I'm assuming you take in the rodeo, right? Oh, absolutely. I'll at least go to one night of the rodeo. Have you, like, do you go to rodeos throughout the year or is, I mean, like the NFR, the one that you go to and you look forward to the most? We play a lot of PBR stuff, uh, a lot of regional rodeos. I mean, that's been a big, big part of my whole career. I've been been very involved in all that stuff through the years. I grew up around the rodeo. I grew up around Texarkana. Uh, Our little county fair and rodeo was a big part of my childhood growing up. I mean, I, I remember getting on calf and riding in the Little Bridges Rodeo when I was just a kid. Uh, so I grew up in FFA and Agri and all that stuff. So it was a big part of the culture of my life where I grew up. Uh, and there's just always, you know, the fair is not the fair without the rodeo. There's something about the smell of the livestock and, and, the, and the announcer's voice come over that crappy PA in the rodeo arena that just, it, it was, it felt like fall to me because that was, our rodeo always happened the first part of September. It's like right there as the season start to change, everybody's going back to school, the fair comes to town. I mean, it was just, I, I can still smell the smells of the old place. You know, it was just such a wonderful time. I got great memories of it. Yeah, I got to tell you, your voice, first of all, you got a great voice. I, obviously, you get paid for that. But, man, you also have, like, a rodeo announcer voice. You would be <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, Tracy, I got to tell you, man, this was, uh, you know, don't want to hold you up too much, but this, this was fun having you on, man. You are as about as cowboy as cowboy gets uh, listening to what you do and what, what – uh, what you've been doing and what you've done over the past years. This is uh, thank you for taking the time to come on NFR extra. Well, I appreciate y'all so much. Well, I, I hope y'all stay safe out there and uh, I hope uh, we get a chance to meet each other in person. I look forward to getting back, back in Vegas real soon. Y'all stay safe. All right. You too. Thank you. Yeah. God bless, man. God bless y'all. We want to thank Josh Edwards and Tracy Lawrence for visiting us on NFR Extra. Stay tuned for episode 65 when we talk to six-time world champ Sage Kimsey about getting married and chasing his seventh world title during the pandemic. And we find out all the details for Cowboy Christmas and Junior World Finals in Texas. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit NFRExperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Gotta make it out the back. 
Rovers and the racers and the bulls and the bronx And the ladies in the skin-tight wrangers and the cowboy hats